And we'll be, Lord willing, finish the second part of what we started last week. Um, just to remind you, uh, I was explaining last week about a summer job I had to help kind of illustrate this idea of uh, uh, trials. And I uh, explained I worked in a foundry. So in this summer job working in a foundry, we would melt metal and try to get the impurities out of that, melt it, and then they would pour this into different uh, castings so that it would take shape so they can make parts that they could sell. But a part of the process in this was evaluating those parts. So we put them in a special dye and we would uh, then look at them under a special light and then in that special light it would bring out the impurities in the metal and so we could uh, find the flaws and then address them. Um, so just trying to picture here some examples of finding flaws in the metal and the guy looking at them under the light would circle different pieces that would need to then be dug out and fixed so that they could uh, get the part in the condition it needed to be. So these are different uh, examples here of just people grinding out uh, things on parts uh, like they might do in a foundry. Um, and then once uh, they filled it back in and got the metal where it needed to be and uh, they inspected again and it was good enough, then they would send it to the sandblaster that would uh, smooth the part out, get all the roughness or sharpness off of it and smooth it out the way it needed to be so they could sell this. Now, the company would do all of this to the metal and to these parts because they wanted to sell a quality product. So they had to remove the flaws and that was key to their business was having a solid, reliable part that would be trustworthy to do its job. So by way of illustration, it, this is similar to the kinds of things God does in our lives through trials. God allows hardship and difficulty to come into our lives, but he's using that to expose the flaws in our lives, the problems in our lives, so that we can address that, um, so that we can confess those sins, those things that are wrong, recognize we have more need of him than perhaps we've been realizing we need him. So he, in using these hardships and difficulties, drives us to himself. And what we've been talking about here in James chapter 1 and verses 2 through 11 is how we're to respond to this stuff that's going on in our lives that's hard and difficult. How are we to respond to it? James really in this passage I think gives us four main responses that we're supposed to have, all of which you could characterize by saying we're to respond to trials in faith. And then he, but he gives four specific commands that uh, we talked about, two of which last week. So we talked last week about how we respond to trials in faith, and the first example of how we respond to trials in faith is we respond with joy or rejoicing. Now if you think about difficulty and hardship, and we're supposed to look at that and rejoice, that takes faith to respond that way, doesn't it? Because that's not a normal human response. We have difficulty, we want to run from it. We want to escape it. We want to get out of it. And yet God says we should respond to trials by faith. And that's because, though, 
we know by faith and the revelation that God gives us that he's accomplishing something good because he's in control of every detail of our lives. So we can rejoice because, not because we like pain, uh, but we rejoice because of the outcome he's accomplishing. So we rejoice, number one. We also learned last week that we are to respond to trials by submitting to them. If we know that God's accomplishing something good through this difficult and hard thing, we should submit to his will in that. We should yield ourselves. We should quit fighting to get out of it or escape or complain against him in it and instead recognize this is all a part of God's plan and yield ourselves to his will even though humanly speaking it wouldn't be what we would choose so we submit to God in trials and we're going to see thirdly today that we're supposed to respond to trials with prayer we're supposed to respond to trials with prayer and that's what we're going to pick up this morning in verses 5 through 11 Lord willing we'll get down to 11 and finish this section. But let's read 5 through 11 and, and then go to the Lord in prayer as we finish up. It says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, but the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with the scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed, so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Let's pray before we look at the next two points this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are working in the midst of things that are difficult and hard and painful in our lives. And it's often hard for us to see what's going on and understand but we know by your scriptures we know by faith that you are in control of all things and you have good purposes for it even when we don't understand it help us to respond in joy knowing that you are working to accomplish good to produce endurance in our lives help us to respond uh, in submission knowing that you're in control help us also father as we see this morning to respond by praying and seeking you instead of trusting in ourselves and help us to glory in the good things you're doing even though it may be difficult and hard in our lives. And and I pray that you'd open our understanding and see these things and expose to us where we're not responding in these ways to difficult and hard things going on in our lives right now. And I pray lastly you'd prepare us as well for things that may be just around the corner that we don't even know about yet. Please give us grace to be ready and and respond in submission now so that we're ready when those things do come. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we see this morning we're supposed to respond to trials not only with uh, joy and rejoicing and submission, but also with prayer. God wants us to respond to trials with prayer. A big part of what 
he does in a trial is driving us to himself. He, he is the one that has all the resources and the abilities to help us, and we need to recognize that and go to him. So I want you to see, first of all, we have uh, a few points to think about here under rejoicing as we look at this uh, verses 5 through 8, talking about rejoicing. We need to see, first of all, that he starts with a condition. He starts with a condition in verse 5. It says, but if any of you lacks wisdom. So it's a question. It's if, if you lack wisdom. Now, it's interesting that this is the only specific need that James mentions in the section, is the need for wisdom. And he, and he phrases it as a question using the word if. But if you look at verse 5, he's actually joining what he'd said in verse 4 together with verse 5 because he says the result, the result of a trial is that God is producing spiritual maturity in your life so that you will lack nothing, so that you'll be fully mature. And he uses this phrase, lacking in nothing. And then he uses that same word, lack, to then tie together this idea of this third point, is that if we do happen to lack something, however, we need to go to God to meet that need. So he's asking the question, or, or stating it as a question, if we lack wisdom as a condition here, but being that it's the only thing he mentions, it's pretty safe to assume it's a condition that is generally true. When we go through hard things, when we're faced with difficulties, many times it's new things we've never dealt before, with before, and we don't always know how to respond or to deal with it. Now, we know in a general way we need to respond with joy. We need to respond in faith by uh, submitting to it. But there may be specific things we need to uh, apply Scripture to to help us in a trial, and we need to ask God for that. And I think in part, he may also be mentioning here to uh, make this notice, uh, make us notice that this is something we need to recognize as a need in a trial. Um, we're not going to ask for something we don't think we need, right? So he's highlighting here what is a common need and perhaps the greatest need in a trial, that of wisdom. But often the problem is we don't ask God because we don't recognize that we need it or we lack it. So he's pointing out here as an example. I think of the example of Adam and Eve. Um, do you remember when Adam was created? He was created first. And what did God show to Adam uh, right before he made Eve? He showed Adam the animals, right? And what did Adam then conclude after seeing all the animals? He concluded, hey, these animals, there's multiple animals and there's uh, multiple kinds of animals and, and similar, there, there's, there's multiple of the same animals. There's only one of me, of my kind. There's no one else like me. Now, as you read the, the, the Genesis narrative, when, when that's all being explained, it's clear that God intended to meet that need for Adam, but God does all these things showing Adam that he has the need. So he then recognizes he needs somebody, a companion for himself. And I think in a similar way, we often go through trials to recognize our need. We, we tend to think of ourselves as self-sufficient at times. 
We have a lot of modern conveniences. We have a, a lot of things that help us. I'm a computer guy, I love technology. There's a lot of things I can do with technology. We feel quite empowered to get and do what we need. And if, even if we don't know things, what do we think we can do? We can Google it. We can go search it, right? We just think if we don't know it, we can find it. But we need to recognize we need wisdom from God. And that's uh, my second point here under uh, praying is there's a condition, he says, if we lack wisdom, but he also gives us the content of what we should be asking. What is it that we should be asking God for? It's wisdom. Now, in contrast to something like Google, wisdom is not just getting more information. It's not just facts. Wisdom could be defined as a capacity to understand and function accordingly. Or another definition I heard is that wisdom uh, is the proper use and application of Scripture. So it is an understanding of Scripture and the uh, carrying out of what the Scripture says. So when we go to God and we're asking Him for wisdom in the trial, we're asking for His help to know what we should do so that we do it. I think, for example, of, uh, in, a, in a contrary example of King Rehoboam. You remember King Rehoboam, the son of Solomon? He uh, is confronted by the uh, people saying, your father taxed us too much. You need to lighten up on the taxes and we'll serve you. And so Rehoboam goes to the old men first, the elders that had served with his father Solomon, and they say, the people are right. If, if you are, are gentle with them and you take it easy on them, they'll serve you and they'll be your servants. And so he gets this good advice, this wisdom, and yet he's not happy with that. So he goes to his friends that are his age and asks them and says, what should I do? And they say, oh, you tell them your father's th thigh were as thick as your pinky and you're going to make this worse. And you're going to scourge them with scorpions and all kinds of stuff like that. And so Rehoboam likes that idea and he goes and he tells them that. And then we have a divided kingdom that comes as a result. Rehoboam received wisdom, but he didn't want it. He wasn't truly wise. He was rejecting wisdom. When we're asking for wisdom, we're asking for insight and understanding so that we can do what we need to do. Now, we, may, we have to think about wisdom also in the sense of how has that come to us? How do we get this wisdom? How do we, how do we get wisdom in a trial and, and do what we're supposed to do in a trial? Well, it's not by God giving us special revelation, just dropping knowledge into our head that we never had before. It's not that kind of special revelation that we're praying for. What it is, is we're praying for God to help us understand what he's already written and how that applies to our current situation so that we can do that. So, we're actually asking for God to illumine us, to give us understanding of what he's written and how it applies to the situation. So, when we're asking God for wisdom in a trial, we should not divorce that request from reading the scriptures. When we're ignorant of what to do, we should be drawn upon the revelation God's given us and asking him to guide us in what we're reading and how 
it applies to our life so we can figure out what we need to do, so we can obey him. We're asking for wisdom. We're asking for understanding so that we can obey what he's asking us to do in a trial. I think it's interesting to also note what, what we're not asking for. By asking for wisdom, we're not asking for immediate release and removal from a trial. Now, are there times where that's the kind of thing we should be praying for? Sure. There's times where we should pray that God helps us get out of a particular situation, something we're dealing with. But there are times where that may not be what God intends to do. And uh, I think Paul, which we'll, we'll look at actually in a minute, is an example of that where he talks about his thorn in the flesh. He prayed repeatedly that God would remove this thorn in the flesh from him, and God said no. So we need to ask for wisdom. We would like escape. But God has a purpose and intention for what we're going through. And like James said in verse 3 and 4, we need to submit to that and let, uh, let the trial have its perfect work in accomplishing spiritual maturity in our lives. So we need to ask for wisdom. But we also... Uh, in addition to seeing the content here, we also see the command. Look at verse 5 again. It says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, what are we to do? Let him ask of God. Now, I believe I may have said this last week um, regarding one of the earlier verses, either in the morning or in the evening I mentioned this, but the idea of the word let here, in English it kind of sounds like a passive allow something, the actual Greek idea is a command. It's a third-person command. See, our commands in English, we say, you go do something. We have a harder time saying it in the third person. He needs to go do something. But that's what James is saying here. The person who lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. It's a command. Go to God. If you have a need in a trial, you need God's wisdom. You need to go to God. He's the source. He is the one that has all things. We need to request it from him. It's all his. And the fact that we're asking also helps us remember. It's a gift. God doesn't owe it to us. We need to be asking for wisdom. It's a gift. It's undeserved. It's unearned and therefore special. But I believe the idea here of the ask is not just Go and ask him one time and you're done. The idea is you keep on asking. You continue to ask until you have what you need. And if we really recognize we need it, it only makes sense that we're going to keep asking until we get it. I think of uh, Matthew 15. Hopefully this is a uh, familiar example to you. There was a Syrophoenician woman. Do you remember? She came to Jesus. And she didn't even get to Jesus initially. She just reached the disciples, right? And she's asking, like others have had family members healed of various things. She's asking for a similar thing. She comes and she gets to the disciples. And basically they're trying to shoo her away. And uh, finally it's like, uh, you know, um, come talk to this woman. Or, uh, because she keeps bothering us, and, and uh, the disciples want to send her away. But Jesus said, 
he, he would listen to her and she could come and she could ask. So she asks that her daughter would be healed. And at first, there's not a response. He's not responding. Then she continues to ask and he says, it's not right for me to give uh, food to the dogs. Um, I, I need to, basically he's saying, I've come to minister to the children of Israel and you're a Gentile, you're an outsider. It's not right to give the bread that belongs to the children to the dogs. Now when you think about what's being said there, that can be taken very insultingly, couldn't it? And yet, she continues to ask and she with humbleness says, Yes, Lord, but the dogs can even eat the crumbs that fall from the children's table, right? And then what does Jesus say? Great is your faith. It will be done to you as you have requested. Her daughter was healed because she persisted in asking. And Jesus didn't say those things to her because he didn't want to help her. He wanted to demonstrate the faith faith that she had in him. She knew he was the only one that could help her. He, she knew that he is good and that he would help her. So she continued to ask. She persisted in asking. And what a powerful example she was of how we should pray. If you're anything like me, we often stop because we're discouraged. We haven't seen the results yet. Now, this is not exactly the same thing as wisdom in a trial, but, for example, praying for unsaved family members. There's a lot of unsaved family members that have been praying for for a long time and have not seen them come to Christ yet. In some cases, they're not even close to interested. That's discouraging at times. But we know we need to keep praying for those people. It's the right thing. God is interested in saving souls. God is interested in bringing people to repentance and faith, to uh, glorify Himself, glorify His Son. He's in that work. He's doing that work. But the delay, the lack of answer many times feels like a discouragement, but as God works in trials, God works in lack of answers to prayer sometimes too to produce endurance so that we persevere. God wants us to persevere in asking. Think about the unrighteous judge. It talks about the widow who is going to the unrighteous judge. She was asking for the judge to uh, avenge her of her adversaries, and the judge didn't want to do it. But she kept coming. She kept bugging him. And finally he said, not because I care about this widow or this issue, I just want her to stop bugging me. So he then gives her what she's asking. Now, it's clear God isn't of that same attitude about our approaching. He wants us to approach he wants us to help. But Jesus cites that as an example of being persistent in asking. 
we also, if we know we need wisdom, we know we need God's help in going through a trial, we keep asking even if we don't see it yet. We keep asking. We keep going to Him. And it's a command. And it's one of the purposes in a trial is that He would draw us to Himself. Now, uh, another point we see here is that we should have confidence. We should have confidence in going to God. Notice he says here in verse 5, Let him ask of God who gives uh, to all generously without reproach, and it will be given him. There's an indication here that God will answer that prayer. And why can we be confident of that? We can be confident of it because he says God is generous. What do you know about God and His generosity? Think of some simple examples. The Bible tells us He brings the sun. He brings the rain on the good and the evil. He is kind and generous to all people in, in, in many different ways. He gives us life. He gives health. He gives food. He's generous even to those who aren't His children. Even to those who are opposed to Him. He is kind and gracious and long-suffering. He is good. But primarily we see, as Romans 8.32 tells us, He gave His Son. And Paul uses this logic in Romans 8.32. If God gave His Son for us, what greater... I'm, I'm rephrasing a little bit, but what greater thing could He give? That's the greatest He could have given. If He's given His Son, everything else is much less significant than that. Surely he'll give us what we need. He gave his son. He is good. He is gracious. And he has plenty. He has plenty. There's no lack. We lack, but God doesn't. Not long ago, uh, my wife and I were looking for a dresser, and we went on Craigslist, and we found somebody down in the Toledo, Ohio area that was selling a dresser. It looked like a really strong, sturdy dresser. And so we went down there, and we, we uh, met a woman uh, who had a warehouse, and she had dozens of dressers in that warehouse. She was selling them for $25. Now at the time, um, we, were, we just needed one dresser. So uh, we, we got one dresser for $25, but she kept pushing us. She's like, do you need a second dresser? I've got a whole bunch. I've got a whole bunch. Are you sure you can't use a second one? Do you, do you know anyone who needs another one? And I remember, I and mean, we talked about it. We were thinking, These, this is a really solid dresser. We would love to have had another one because it's very solid. It's one of those dressers they use in the dorm rooms. In fact, that's where she got it. It was from a college dormitory nearby when they replaced furniture. And you can completely pull out all four drawers, wide open. Not that kids would ever do that, but... Um, leave all four drawers open at the same time and it wouldn't fall over. It was very sturdy. Very sturdy. We like it. We wish we could have had a second dresser. But we didn't have a need for one. And yet, this woman had plenty and it was very inexpensive. Now, she's doing it to make money, but I'm, I'm hoping you can see the connection there. God has everything we need. And he would love to give us much more than we're willing to ask for. What's the problem? James tells us in four, uh, chapter 4, one of the problems is we don't ask. We need to ask. And maybe why we're not asking is because we don't recognize our need. 
We need to recognize in a trial we need God's wisdom and we need to go to Him. And we can be confident going to Him because He has plenty and He's good. He wants to help. It also says that He will not upbraid or reproach. Upbraid is the King James Version. It says He will not reproach us. As parents, we have to admit, we've had those moments where our kids have asked us for things, right? And we get irritated with them sometimes. We shouldn't. We should be gracious and patient. But sometimes we get irritated, don't we? Have you ever been that parent that you're asked repeatedly, you're not responding? Uh, sometimes this happened in my household. Uh, Dad, nothing. Dad, nothing. Dad, nothing. Finally, Dad, what? Right? That's a reproach to somebody asking, right? That is a discouragement. Quit asking me things. You're bothering me, right? Sometimes as parents, maybe even as grandparents, we fall into that pattern. But God is never like that. God wants to hear from us. We should have no hesitation, no fear to go to Him. He wants to hear from us. He does not reproach us. Hebrews 4.16 tells us to come boldly to the throne of grace in the time of need, that we'll have grace and mercy to meet our needs. We should go to God without hesitation. And then we can have confidence that He will give us. Why? Because He is good. He wants to give us what we need. And it is a need. So He's going to meet our needs. We can have confidence, therefore. But James does give here another uh, condition. He does give another condition in saying that when we go to God and ask, we must do so without doubting. Uh, Look at verse 6. It says, But he must ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So, if you were to look over at Hebrews chapter 11, which is just a page away, uh, Hebrew, uh, in my Bible at least, maybe two or three in yours, Hebrews 11:6 talks about the nature and how we are to approach God in prayer. Um, and it says in Hebrews 11:6 that without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. See, faith is a necessary part of prayer. And as we were just describing, God is good. He's a loving Heavenly Father. He gives us what we need. Why would we doubt? He'll give us what we need. Now, there are times when we pray and ask for things and God doesn't give it to us. But we also know from the rest of Scripture, if He doesn't, it's because we don't need it or it's not good for us. If we really need wisdom, He is going to give it to us. We need to be asking without fear, without hesitation. We need to not doubt or uh, question Him if we don't get what we're asking. But our first response that we're covering this morning is that we're to respond to trials with prayer. We need to go to God. And we talked, uh, just a quick review, we talked about uh, rejoicing in trials. We talked about submitting to God in trials. We talked now about praying. 
I want to cover, lastly, glorying in trials. Uh, number four, let's look at verses 9 through 11. In 9 through 11, it says, But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man, in the midst of his pursuits, will fade away. So, I think there are some questions to answer in this one. We're going to have to have a little more technical explanation. It won't be as long as the previous section, but I need to walk you through, I think, a few questions to help understand what he's saying here in 9 through 11 and how it applies to the rest of the trials, all right? So I have a list of questions here that I intend to answer. Um, so first of all, he, I think we need to answer the question, uh, number one, of what does glory mean? What does it mean to glory? We'll look at that in just a minute. I'm going to give you the five questions and then we'll go through each one. Um, what does high position mean here? He speaks of the poor per person being in a, or having a high position. What does that mean? Uh, number three, is the rich person here he's speaking of a believer or an unbeliever? Um, and then uh, number four, number four is how can a rich person glory in his humiliation? How, how is that possible? How does that make sense? And then lastly, the question of why does James say this here? Always a good question to ask when you're doing Bible study. Why is it said here? You've got to understand, first of all, what they're saying, and then you ask, why here? Looking at the context, what makes sense? How does this fit? And how does that maybe help answer some of the questions about it maybe that are difficult to answer? So, the first one. The first one, I would say, glory. Glory means uh, basically to brag or to boast or to take pride in. Um, or in some cases, it even may mean to rejoice in. So, when we think about Christian qualities, characteristics, we don't typically think of boasting as a good thing or being commanded to boast. Um, and look with me at James chapter 4. James chapter 4, this same idea is used, 4.16, where James warns against boasting. He says in 4.16, but as it is... You boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Okay, so there are times where boasting is clearly a negative thing. Um, and also you can see the same thing in Ephesians 2, that classic passage about uh, you are saved by grace through faith and not of works. Why are you not saved by works? What does he say in that passage? So that no one can boast. All right, so you can't brag about earning salvation. Um, so boasting in that context is negative. However, there are some contexts in which the idea of boasting is positive, and I'd suggest this is one of them, um, but we're also going to look at 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12. So look with me real quick at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I trust this is a familiar, and I mentioned it earlier. I told you we we're going to look at it, and here we are. So in, in uh, chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, Paul is talking about um, uh, his response to not getting that thorn removed that he had prayed about. Um, and he says in response to that trial um, and that difficulty he's dealing with, he says in verse 30, I'm sorry, of 11, if I have to boast, same word, 
I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. All right, so Paul is talking about boasting in his weakness. He goes on in chapter 12 and saying boasting is necessary um, and not profitable. He's talking about if he has visions and that's not a good boasting. Um, but then he goes on and says, verse uh, 6, um, he talks about, I do not wish to boast, I will not be foolish, speaking the truth, but I refrain from this. So he doesn't want to boast about uh, revelations. I'm sorry, verse 5. Uh, I will not boast except in regard to my weakness. And I believe that's the idea here. The idea here in James is that he's talking about the rich person boasting in their weakness, not trusting in their material riches. So, um, glorying here uh, refers to boasting, or, or you could say rejoicing in a truth, and that, and that truth we're going to uh, explain a little bit more here. But it says the poor, the poor person is to rejoice or boast in his high position. What does that mean? Well, I think there's a few choices. It could mean that he is to boast in the fact that he's in Christ, and in Christ he has all riches and things. Um, or it could refer to a future state where we're all going to be, all believers are going to be glorified, and so he should rejoice in, in the greatness of that glorification that is to come. But again, the context is that of trials. And I think that helps us understand it's not just a state of being in Christ that he's talking about here, but I believe it is in trials, the poor man can boast because social and economically he doesn't have anything. But because of his relationship with God, he has access to everything he needs. And therefore, in a sense, he's elevated in trials because God helps him. He has everything he needs in Christ. And therefore, in a trial, he can rejoice because he is, in that sense, elevated. God helps him. God meets the needs for him and gives him everything he needs. Um, uh, number three, we ask the question, who is the rich person, a believer or not? And if you're not real familiar with the book of James, you may not understand why that's a question. Um, I would say, first of all, initial read of the passage suggests it's a question the, the rich man's going to be humiliated? How, how is that a good thing? Why, why would that be happening to a believer um, if it's a believer? Um, if you look at James chapter 2, he uses uh, the rich to speak negatively. He says in, in 6 of chapter 2, he says, But you have dishonored the poor man. It is, not, is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? So, He's kind of got a categorical statement there that it's rich people that are evil and persecute the poor believers, right? Um, and if you look at chapter 5 of James, it's, uh, it's even worse. <laughs> it's even a greater condemnation here. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and consume your flesh like Fire. So it, it sounds like James is describing uh, rich people in a very negative way here, doesn't it? Um, but I would suggest to you there's some other evidence that we can use to uh, suggest that this actually um, is a reference to a rich believer. Now, um, 
it, it's a little bit of English, so I have to do an English lesson real quick. I think I'll make it simple for you, all right? Um, the word here is ellipsis. Are you familiar with ellipsis? Um, the word ellipsis um, refers to many times in writing, you'll see dot, 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 three dots in a row. That's an ellipsis. And the dot, dot, dot means I've left something off, right? I haven't said everything. I've left something out. Sometimes what happens is in a quote, you want to quote part of it and not all of it, so you use the ellipsis, dot, 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 to leave out the part that's not relevant to what you're saying. But there's another use of ellipsis, which is uh, just not putting the words in the sentence, but yet communicating the idea. So let me give you an example here of an ellipsis. So um, the sentence here, I'm starting off with, I went to the ball on Monday, and she went on Sunday. Do you see the ellipsis there? Do you see what was left out of the second part of the sentence? It's, I went to the mall on Monday, if you were to put the full thought of what's being said there, what I'm saying is, and she went to the mall on Sunday, all right? But I left out the phrase to the mall because you clearly understand that from the context. It's obvious that's what was being said, all right? So let's walk through that with James. Um, so in this passage, 1, 9 through 10, this is what I believe James is doing here. Um, in 9 through 10, James starts off by saying, the brother of humble circumstances, or the poor man, is to glory in his high position, as we already explained. Then he goes on and he says, and the rich in his humiliation. The problem is our English translation actually supplies some words that aren't in the Greek. So you can see part of this in uh, verse 10. If you look, this is what the translators do often when they supply something. You notice that the rich man is to glory, is italicized, right? What that means is it wasn't in the Greek. They supplied it to give understanding of what's being said here. And many times, most times, that's very good and very helpful and accurate. Um, and in this case, that's accurate. He... he is speaking of the rich man glorying as well. The problem in this particular case is the word man. Man isn't italicized, but it's not in the Greek. So when you read verse 10, it, it actually says in the Greek, the rich is to glory in, the rich in his humiliation. That's all that's there in the Greek. They've supplied the word man. Unfortunately, they didn't italicize it. I looked in the ESV. The ESV doesn't put man in there for the first one, but it unfortunately does for the second one. Um, NIV actually leaves man out in both cases, but that's not a recommendation on the NIV in, per se. But I'm just saying, translations, if you read different ones, will expose that to you. In this case, um, man is supplied here, but it shouldn't be because it's not in the Greek. All right. So if you follow the logic... He's saying the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position and the rich in his humiliation. So I believe the, the right logic then of what James is saying is to say uh, the rich brother is to glory in his humiliation. So a lot of explanation. I Hopefully you follow that and it makes sense. But I, I think it's clear he's speaking in this case of a believer and he's saying the believer who has lots of means should rejoice or glory in his humiliation. Now, what does that mean? So that's our, our fourth question. What does it mean that he should 
uh, rejoice in his humiliation. So this is a familiar concept, and so I'll go quickly with this one. Um, but the idea is that he's being made low. Humiliation means he's being made low. And the illustration that James gives is of the grass. We're familiar. Jesus used a similar idea. He spoke of Solomon and all his glory wasn't arrayed like the grass, but the grass is here today, gone tomorrow, right? God takes care of the grass and, and makes it beautiful, but it's temporary. And the idea is similar here of the rich man. The rich man and his material possessions are temporary. And the rich man needs to recognize his material goods aren't going to necessarily help him in a trial. But God can and does. He needs to rely upon God in a trial, not his material means. And so going through a trial and recognizing that his riches won't let him escape is helpful and good, and he can rejoice in learning that lesson. So along that lines, I have a, um, well, I was just illustrating grass. We know it can go. Um, he also talks about the old man fading away, uh, becoming old and fading away in his, in his ways. So ultimately, all of us are getting older and will eventually die. And instead of cause for concern, we just recognize this is how things are, and it just causes us to value eternity and God and the good gifts that he gives us above the temporary things because they're going to fade away. I have this quote. It's kind of long, but I like from a professor of mine explaining this concept of the rich person going through trials. So when a uh, trial comes upon a rich believer, he is humbled to learn that his material wealth is not of true lasting value and perhaps more importantly cannot deliver him from his trial. In learning that lesson, he also learns that only God and what he supplies is of lasting value and can deliver him. He can rejoice in the, learning the transitionary nature or temporary nature of material wealth and the absolute value of God's promises and provisions. The rich, like all men, face transitory life and judgment and their wealth is of no value in sparing them from death and is of no advantage in the judgment they face. The sooner the rich brother learns that lesson, the better off he is. So that's how a rich believer can rejoice or glory in a trial, is a reminder that his material things do not help him. Ultimately, he needs to trust God. So why does James mention this here? I think there's a real simple explanation. Money is often one of the things about which we experience trials. It is a frequent thing of our trials. We have, uh, we, we had something in our home. We we're uh, trying to move. We're trying to move and sell our old house. And guess what happened in our old house? An accident. Um, somebody was playing outside and a ball got hit and broke a window in our house. That was a trial about money for me. I respond in frustration when I have to pay things that I didn't expect to have to pay, even if the money's there sometimes, right? Money is often a thing we experience trials about. And it's not just the rich, and it's not just the poor, it's everyone, right? And probably most of us say we're somewhere in the middle. We probably wouldn't classify ourselves as either one. But we all experience trials about money. And Paul, or I'm sorry, James here is reminding us 
that it's important that we have the right view about our temporary goods. They are temporary, and God is ultimately the one that helps us. So, in conclusion, in conclusion, how do we respond to trials? Very simply, we respond to trials by rejoicing because God is at work in them accomplishing good. Therefore, we rejoice, even though it's painful and difficult. We also submit because we know God is working endurance in our lives and we want him to accomplish what he's trying to accomplish in our lives. We submit to it. We also pray. Trials should drive us to God. He is eager and willing and capable of helping. We need to be asking him and to keep on asking him for help in the trial. And we should also glory. This life and the goods that we have in it are temporary. We rejoice at the reminders of that, that God is the one that ultimately will provide everything we need. Um, just There was a big uh, lottery recent, right? I, I, you may not want to admit you know that, but, um, um, and certainly don't tell me if you played, but um, there was a big lottery, right? Big Powerball winner I saw on, on one of the, the stations. Uh, I, I thought it was somewhere around $700 million or something like that. This thought struck me not long ago. It's a basic concept, but a good reminder. If I had $700 million or $300 million or whatever, you know, I would feel like I was set for life. But you know what? That's not reality. There are trials and difficulties that come into our lives that have nothing to do with money and money can't help with. And besides, my Heavenly Father, your Heavenly Father, owns everything and he can give you exactly what you need you don't need 700 million dollars he can meet our needs we need to rejoice we need to submit we need to pray and we need to glory in god's reminding us of these things let's pray heavenly father thank you thank you for the patience of your people and a long message i pray that you would help all of us though to be encouraged to go to you. Father, I know, you know in my own life and my thinking that I can do it, help us to remember we need you. We don't know. We need wisdom. We need you to unlock what you've written so we understand it and we can apply it and live it. Help us to do that. Help us also to remember these, these goods, these things that you give us in this life are temporary. They're going to go away, but you are not. And the good things that you give us are eternal. And we rejoice in our relationship with you and help us to value that above everything else. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.